welcome to Inside Jackson Station, the podcast that takes you inside the legendary South Carolina blues bar. That's Nappy Brown singing with Bob Margolin on guitar. You'll hear more from Bob later on when he's interviewed. To begin, let's listen a bit to what it sounded like to be at Jackson Station on a night when Nappy Brown was singing and Bob Margolin was playing guitar. The story of Jackson Station might have been forgotten had it not been for the work of Dan Harrison, the author of Live at Jackson Station and the host of this podcast. Let's listen to Dan describe how he discovered the story of Jackson Station, which ultimately led to him writing the book. I migrated down to South Carolina, and after a one-year stint at Furman University, I, I've been at uh, Landry University, which is in Greenwood, South Carolina, for the last uh, 16 years or so. I'm a professor of sociology here, and also have been doing a number of research projects over the years. In 2014, I started my second uh, book project, which is Live at Jackson Station, which focuses in on this blues bar in the South Carolina upstate, in a little town called Hodges, South Carolina. And this bar was housed in an old railroad depot that had been built in 1870. And it was owned by this guy named Gerald Jackson and his boyfriend, Steve Bryant, and then also Gerald's mother, Elizabeth Jackson. So that in and of itself is kind of interesting because you have two gay guys in uh, the upstate South Carolina. And this was 1975 is when this blues bar opened for the first time. In the early 80s, they started having amazing music shows there. And your listeners has probably heard of about a, a jam band called Widespread Panic, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the, the biggest kind of musical acts uh, still around today. And they came over from Athens, Georgia, and uh, when they were, you know, very young and just starting out, and they played nine shows at Jackson Station over the years. And they were very welcomed by Gerald and Steve, and they really appreciated the family vibe of Jackson Station, the tolerant nature of the place, the diversity of the place. Jackson Station was the only late night uh, club in the area. And so people would come from miles around. They would drive up from Charleston. They would come down from Charlotte. They would come down from Greenville across from Athens and up from Augusta and so on and so forth. And and they would party there and, and, and drink and listen to live music until about five o'clock in the morning. You'll hear a lot of people talk about the late night hours at Jackson Station. It's part of what made the place so amazing. We'll listen now a bit more to Nappy Brown and Bob Margolin playing B.B. King's Three O'Clock Blues. Get a sense of that late night feel before picking back up with Dan. Even close my eyes. 
We're going to pick up again now with Dan's story. Like any good blues story, there's a little bit of tragedy to it. The story of Gerald Jackson and Jackson Station took a tragic turn in April of 1990. We'll pick up with Dan here. It all came crashing down one day when Gerald, the owner, got attacked by a maniac with a bush axe in the parking lot. And then the club, for all intents and purposes, closed down. Right. And when I moved to Greenwood, which is where my uh, university is housed, I have heard about this place being just, you know, this amazing kind of oasis of tolerance and kind of just diversity and cosmopolitanism, which is really kind of rare in, you know, the deep South. And I right. live in a place which is still, it's a very red state, South yep. Carolina is, but you have pockets of, of blue and, and lots of purple kind of along the way. I found that idea to be very fascinating and I was looking for the next research project. And so I started to do some investigation into Jackson Station as a musical identity and kind of this local institution that would promote and nurture and foster a whole bunch of musical talent yeah. over the years, actually. And right. uh, a lot of, you know, bands would come over from Atlanta and Athens, Love Tractor, which was uh, kind of contemporaneous with REM. They have a, a huge following still today. They played there, the Georgia Satellites. You had some amazing blues play there. Yeah. Nappy Brown, the R&B songwriter. So it was a fascinating case study. And I was kind of amazed that no one had done anything with it before then. As a sociologist and as kind of a researcher, you're always looking for a story that hasn't been told before. Yeah. And the fact that it was this iconic musical establishment. And then also the fact that this apparent hate crime yeah. happened there was all it needed for me to get interested in it and did a lot of interviews, about 65 interviews, uh, a lot of archival research, and then also a lot of the deep analysis of the court transcript. And hopefully the end result is, I, I think is a pretty decent read. The really amazing thing about Jackson Station is he had a number of different distinct social groups or subcultures or identities claiming the bar as their own. And so the place was known for being a biker bar. And so you'd have beefy biker guys show up. You'd have 10 or 12 motorcycles, you know, parked out out front. But it was also known as a gay bar. Not completely, you know, not always as a gay bar, but yeah. gay people were welcome there. It had gay owners and so on and so forth. And so the gay and lesbian crowd adopted it as their own. The college kids would also come and adopt it as their own. The rednecks, you know, would also hang out there. Yeah. And the countercultural types, you know, the 1980s, people listening to New Order and PIL and The Clash and, and yeah. sort of, you know, they would feel, you know, welcomed by Jackson Station. And, and there was sort of a, a certain respect of difference there, which I think was very genuine. And very rarely were there any sort of interdisciplinary squabbles. And I think Gerald Jackson in, in particular was gracious enough to basically let everyone know that all were welcome. And so in this respect, it was a, a very Catholic with a small C place. Right. Ecumenical vibe was going on there. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that is something which you don't find a lot of places. Yeah. And I found that surprising, surprising that it was happening so long ago, but also not that's surprising if you really think about it, mm -hmm. but then we don't want to spoil too much here. It doesn't end particularly well. Jackson Station is no longer open. Can you share a little bit more, give folks a taste of how the story plays out a bit? About halfway through the book, the, the narrative shifts a little bit because after the attack, the club doesn't fare as well. This was Gerald Jackson's baby. This was his dream. 
and it, it just it all came crashing down after that. A number of people tried to open reopen the club, but it just really didn't have the same sort of magic. And so the book at that point takes a little bit more of a, I wouldn't call it necessarily like a, a, a legal thriller because it's, it's not really that, but it is kind of a literary nonfiction analysis or representation of the subsequent trial and the aftermath and what happened to Gerald and, and also Steve, two gay men who were in a very committed, loving relationship, actually, until Gerald uh, passed away uh, 20 years later, which is another sort of element to the story. What I try to do in Life in Jackson Station actually is sort of intertwine four or five different narratives and sort of the musical narrative, which talks a lot about bands like Widespread Panic and the Blues and swimming pool cues and, and how Jackson Station had such an influence on the careers of these musicians. Yeah. And then I also think of Jackson Station's being like the social hub, right? Of, you know, the greater Greenwood area. And then there's also the diversity aspect and there's the potential hate crime aspect yeah. to it. I would, I would describe it as a dive into the culture of the South and how the culture of the South relates to maybe American culture in general. It addresses themes of culture wars to a certain extent, but also I would say how uh, culture can actually transcend politics in interesting ways and how art and music more specifically can transcend politics. Those are some of the themes that, that I hit on. That should get you pretty much up to speed in terms of the story of Jackson Station. We do recommend that you read the book live at Jackson Station and refer to it as we continue these conversations, also check out our website, InsideJacksonStation.com, for more information and access to show notes and other highlights about the club. We'll pick up next with Dan's interview with Bob. Remember to subscribe to Inside Jackson Station wherever you get your podcasts. Write us a review. Share the good word. That's how folks will discover us. We'll pick up next with Dan's interview with Bob. Thanks again for listening to Inside Jackson Station. All right. Well, welcome to Inside Jackson Station, where we take you inside the iconic South Carolina Blues Bar. We have with us in the studio today, Bob Margolin, a very famous blues musician who played at Jackson Station many, many times in the 1980s and was Muddy Waters' lead guitarist for seven years. Thank you, Bob, for joining us today on Inside Jackson Station. My pleasure. I'm glad to be able to share this with you. And honestly, I have not gotten a chance to look at the book till this morning. You seem to have gone very, very deep into the history. You must have uh, interviewed I don't know. How many people did you interview? I interviewed about 65 individuals, actually. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's uh, pretty fantastic. I see the pictures in there. I look through the index to see all of those things. And what a special place that was. I have a feeling you've uh, captured it as well, well as it can be in a book. Can you think, imagine what would have happened if people had these little, if they had a video camera and cell phones, which there was no cell phones then, by quite a few years. 
You know, I, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, to be honest, it'd be great to have the documentary evidence, but uh, I think that perhaps the, the chilling impact that it might have on, on people's behavior might have left something to be desired. As I mentioned, you were one of the uh, musicians who probably played there the most. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first came across Jackson Station? Probably my friend Nelson Penninger from Lexington, North Carolina. I don't know whether he contacted them or the other way around, but I got booked in there and it was like no place I had ever been before. I'd played in the area in South Carolina with, with Muddy in uh, oh, 1974 or so. And it, it was amazing to see the South Carolina is, is, you know, it's down home, it's, it's uh, country, and the people that love blues there really love it. It's a, a special audience, but I remember going there in about 1974 with Muddy Waters, and somebody came up to me in uh, Muddy's harp player and said, y'all good as shit. <laughs> and I said, well, thank you very much, and so are you, but... <laughs> It was just interesting to hear the way people talked and the way they responded to music. What was your first impression walking up the ramp or walking up the steps in, into Jackson Station? Obviously, it's a kind of a strange looking structure. It's very old. It's an old building. It's an old train station. Had you been in places like that before? Some people tell me that the Jackson Station resembles some of these old you know, juke joints that you might see in, say, Mississippi or something. It, it probably was, but it was my first time being really intimate and being a regular at a place like that. It, it had that kind of decoration curated in a hard rock cafe or House of Blues. But this was the real stuff, just anything you could find, throw it up on the wall. Yeah. yeah. The music started fairly late, from what I understand. So you wouldn't yeah, get started well, till about 11. Well, yeah, theoretically 11, and usually a, a little after that. I'm not sure why. But usually I would just be hanging out in the kitchen. Yeah. And their food there was really delicious. I don't eat hot dogs or hamburgers now, but I, I did then, and they were <laughs> fantastic. And they can't take that away from me. Yeah. The Spur Burger and the chili dogs with a special chili sauce. and Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. We would usually hang out in that kitchen until Gerald said, okay, hit it. And then plenty of times when I came, I came out of there, the sun was up. You mentioned how you knew as early as the 70s that you wanted to play music for people in small, intimate clubs. What is it about the blues which captured your soul? early on, would you say? Because you could be a rock and roll guitarist just as easily as being a blues guitarist. And I do love many kinds of music, but there's a, a very specific part of it that really gets to me. And it is what Muddy Waters called old school Chicago blues, which is music that came out when I did. I was born in 1949. And I seem to be very attracted to late 40s, early 50s music. And that's when Muddy Waters was first plugging into uh, with an electric guitar in Chicago, though T-Bone Walker had done it in a more sophisticated setting. Muddy mm -hmm. was playing it raw and nasty and using 
small amps turned all the way up and having a whole different sound to them, the electric harmonica. And as Muddy said, I took the Mississippi blues and put time to it, meaning yeah. drums with a strong backbeat behind him. He had a blues band then that became uh, a template for other blues bands and many rock and roll bands. And I love that kind of music the most, even though I could go into Jackson Station and play whatever I felt like. A little yeah. bit of soul blues, or some straight rock and roll like uh, Chuck Berry or Elvis. And I, I got to play all, all the Chicago blues that I wanted to play, and so I had fun with the other things too, because I could. you credit i know that you have not always taken all the credit but nappy certainly gives you a lot of credit for resurrecting or helping to, to resurrect his career yeah that goes that goes right back to gerald i had heard about nappy actually from muddy waters he said one singer that i really liked from the old days meaning the 50s was nappy brown he's younger than me but he had a lot of church in it and his voice was great and he could really put on a show and put it over and muddy really liked nappy and so i said oh i've got to check this guy out you know it wasn't as easy as just googling him and seeing everything in the world about him like it is today yeah uh, yeah i had to really seek out records and then do the very high tech move of putting the outputs of, of your amplifier into a cassette machine and making a cassette that you could take on the road and play in a vehicle or in a small piano key type of player. I don't think they even had quite boom boxes yet, but they yeah. did have Sony Walkmans from about 1980 or so. But that, that was the medium for listening. And if you had the vinyl album, you could usually read something in the liner notes, which is something I think we miss quite a bit now. Dan's about to get into it about Nappy Brown with Bob. Before we do that, we wanted to play a little bit of Nappy's original sound from back in the 1950s when he was more of an old school R&B artist. Let's listen a little bit of Nappy and then pick up with Dan and Bob's conversation right after that. You play with Nappy a lot. Were most of those shows at Jackson Station or did you play with him elsewhere? Uh, yeah, we started going all over the place up till the time that he passed in 2008. Earlier in 2008, we uh, 
did some shows together that were some of the best we had done. And then he began to get sick during the summertime. Nappy's last good show was at the Blues Music Awards in May of 2008. And he put on a spectacular show, played too long, which the person behind him didn't like, but just tore the place up. And then after that, his health began to fail pretty quickly during that summer. And he passed in September of 2008. Very sad. How would you describe Nappy Brown to, to listeners who, who may not appreciate who he was and his contribution to mid-century American R&B? He was a one-of-a-kind, very powerful and charismatic person. His show business antics, which he had to adopt first, came out of the church. And he also led a gospel group during uh, the 80s and 90s. But he would do all these amazing stage moves of, of dancing around, walking out in the audience and testifying and falling down on the stage and doing lewd things with a microphone stand. All, all while he was wearing the signature white suit, correct? Yeah, it wasn't all, always a, a white suit, but he he had that a lot. He w- was a one-of-a-kind character and all of this while singing as good as humans sing. He wow. was at the very top level of human achievement as a singer. That's amazing. I remember going to a country in Europe with him and after we had done one set, the promoter said, you yes, ask him to tone down the sex part. <laughs> You know, I have a recording of Gerald introducing Nappy to the crowd before you guys got started one night, actually. And uh, I think you'll enjoy listening to that. My baby, she owns an ice cream freezer. kind of girl I'm talking about. She's got those tight buns. And you know what I mean? Nobody, nobody can stir that can like I can. And you know what I mean? When she lets me put my milk in that can, I stay all night long because I'm the man. We got Nappy Brown, and I hope y'all enjoy it, okay? Nappy's ready to come up and do it. I know you are, Nappy. Get your tired ass up and come on, and let's come on. (laughs) And he'll do it all night long for you. Come on, Nappy. Gerald and, and your impressions of him and, and how he was as a proprietor, as a club owner. I didn't even think of him as the club owner because we became friends real good and would hang out and talk about things. And I also spent a lot of time at each gig. I'd, I'd 
be standing out in the little lobby area at, at the entrance and talking to his mother quite a bit, who was an interesting character. Yes. And I, I felt like it, it was all based on friendship, what was going on there. Yeah. And how do you remember the shows at Jackson Station? We talked about them going quite late. How was the crowd? How was the audience? Oh, they, they were wonderful. They would listen and they were very responsive to the music. But the audience was a show in itself. There was all kinds of people came in there of all, all different races and young and old and, and characters all, all mixed together. There was one guy in there who, while the band was playing, used to run a, around like a child pretending he was an airplane, just... <laughs> You know, just moving around like, like that. And I saw him once years later and was surprised that he spoke like a normal person because mostly what I saw was him running around while the music was playing, acting like he was an airplane yeah. or a, a crop duster or something. And how many people were normally traveling with you? Did you have a drummer, bass player? Drummer and a bass player, but very Quickly, maybe by the next year, Gerald said, could we have Fats Jackson and Sweet Betty play with you? And I became really good friends with them and still am with Sweet Betty. And Fats Jackson passed in about 1994 or five, I believe. Yeah, Sweet Betty mentions Jackson Station in her biographical uh, statement on her website as being a pivotal place in her career. You know, I was talking to uh, Dave Schools of Widespread Panic a few years ago, and, and he mentioned a, a funny thing that happened to them when they were at Jackson Station, and that would be the people from the crowd would want to sit in and play with the band. Did that ever happen to you? Is that kind of a phenomenon that you can relate to at all, either at Jackson Station or elsewhere? Sometimes Gerald would set something up. Fats Jackson would play with us quite often, I remember one night Tinsley Ellis came down when we were there and I had met him in the 1970s when he was playing with a band from Atlanta called the Alley Cats. And so we were friends by the 80s. I remember one night he came in to Jackson Station and sat in and he and I all are really good friends. We just talk forever when we get a chance to. That's great. I had a great interview with him too. I'm hoping to get him on this show as well. Fats Jackson was, is notable for, for playing two saxophones at the same time. Yeah, he did. And it sounded wonderful and looked pretty cool. He's not, he's not the only sax player that ever did that, but he did it really well. He yeah. was really a deep musician. His true musical love was jazz music and, and rhythm and blues. Mm -hmm. Usually not too much straight blues, but Fats had a song called Coffee Break Blues that was really a, a very cool song and it was, it was a straight blues and he used to sing it real well and play it and drive people crazy with it. Go me crazy. Dan's about to get into it with Bob about the tragic night when Gerald was attacked in the parking lot. Before we pick up there, let's hear a little of Nappy Brown and Bob Margolin playing live at Jackson Station. Bye bye baby. Just 
if I never see you no more. Ooh, yeah. If I never see you no more. Someday somewhere we will meet on the other shore now obviously at the magic at jackson station came to an end in in april of 1991 gerald was viciously attacked by a, a maniac in the parking lot with with a bush axe and, and left for dead can you tell us a little bit about how you first heard about that attack and then later on and i know you visited gerald at, at the hospital i believe nappy called me up and told me about it i don't think he was there that night but i i think it was the legendary blues band which is mostly guys that i worked with in muddy's band plus i think they had a harp player named madison slim with them and perhaps billy flynn might have been playing guitar on that particular tour i heard about it and i was able to get in touch with Steve and go visit Gerald. It was right after Stevie Vaughn passed away. It was just a few days after that, that I went to the hospital in uh, Columbia. And he was in there. He was messed up. He couldn't speak at all yet. His mind was all there. Uh, he had to have a, uh, a little board that you write things on to be able to communicate that way. And I remember he, he wrote on it, I miss Steve, but Steve Bryant was right there. And I said, well, he's right here. And he, and he said, no, Vaughn, you know, wrote. Oh, wow. He was aware of all that. Goodness. And yeah, it was powerful. He, he was still Gerald in there, but his motor skills were all messed up and he was in a wheelchair. He could speak later on, but it was very hard to understand him. Yeah. And you have to do the best you can with somebody whose speech is impaired like that, but wanted to give him lots of love and, and friendship. I think the last time I saw him would have been in about 2001 or so. Steve brought him to a outdoor concert in Columbia where I was playing with Hubert Sumlin. And I think that was the last time I saw him. But it's an unspeakable tragedy. It, it ended a way of life. Here's a little more of Nappy Brown and Bob Margolin playing Black Knight Falling by John Lee Hooker live at Jackson Station. We'll pick up afterwards with more from Dan and Bob about what Bob's been up to lately and his work with the Pine Top Perkins Foundation helping maintain the legacy of the blues and develop it in young guitarists. We'll pick up with that after, but here's a little John Lee Hooker's classic. Bob Margolin on guitar, Daffy Brown on vocals. Black night is falling. Night is falling, baby. 
maybe you can tell us a little bit about the Prime Top uh, Perkins Foundation work that you have done and, and if you're kind of still working with them. The Pine Top Perkins Foundation started uh, these, the, with these masterclass workshops in 2010 and Pine Top was still alive. He was 96 or, or something. And it started with the conception of trying to teach young people Pine Top just loved how to play blues and develop their music. And they opened up registration and there was only a few people signed up for piano four or five which didn't make sense to have a whole big workshop and i said if you add guitar i can teach it and so we got lots of mostly young people not entirely but young or young at heart and the workshops grew to the point where in 2019, all the workshops took place uh, Hobson Plantation, just outside of Clarksdale, Mississippi, a real home of the blues where you can just feel it in the air, all the history and all the spirit. And it, it really grew to the point where in 2019, we had uh, bass and drums, piano, guitar, and harmonica classes, and even a vocal class, which is a smart thing to do. It's really important. And then we had to go virtual last year. And about a month ago, we made the decision to go virtual again this year because it would just be too restrictive if we were doing this in early June. Are you fairly optimistic about the younger musicians picking up the slack and continuing the blues tradition? Or should we be worried about there being a knowledge and a skill gap there where some of these musical forms and sounds and licks and things will be forever lost. I might have been worried about it being carried forward. I know Muddy Waters certainly was, because he told me that he was, and it really hurt him that young African-American kids were not into his music. It broke his heart that even the, the kids in his own household were, you know, li- listening to whatever was on the radio at the time. In the 80s, it was before hip-hop. We had a young man from Mississippi come down who I noticed right away, he was like 11 years old. He had pretty good guitar chops already. And when it was time for him to take a solo in a song, he would really step into it strong. I took him aside once and said, have you ever heard of Freddie King? No. (laughs) Look at this. And iPhones are just great for YouTube. You can find what you're talking about within a quick search. I said, you step into your solos like this guy. And he looked at it and his eyes got big and he recognized himself and Freddie King. Now he's a blue star at the age of 21. His name is Kingfish. That's awesome. That's an amazing story. He is one of the the best ones out there. Yeah. Yeah. And he, But it was there when he was 11. It was pretty obvious he was going to do that. What do you think is it that explains how some people can just pick up the guitar so quickly? Someone like a Stevie Ray, for example, or maybe this Kingfish guy. And for other people, they may try for years and never be able to even just master the most basic thing. Some people have a special talent for it. Yeah. Muddy used to say something that goes right to what you just said. There are good musicians, some are natural born, and some you can build with a hammer and nails. Mm-hmm. I think I'm the kind that got built with a hammer and nails by Muddy. I think 
kingfish, or there's another young man that his folks are from up north, but they moved to Mississippi uh, by the coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is Six String Andrew, and he's about 16 now. There, there's no way to explain the kind of talent he has. There's another young fellow that's uh, maybe 21 or 22 that lives in Florida named David Julia. The Pontop Foundation sponsored him to go to one of Yorma Kaukonen's workshops that I was teaching at Fur Peace Ranch. So that's his guitar ranch in Ohio. In about the 2013 or so, David came to that and he was 11 or 12 years old, but he was the life of the party. He was always pushing people to do more creative things or try it this way. Or what if you take this lick and turn it inside out? And he's amazingly creative and smart. And he's a young man now that plays as much as he can under these circumstances. It's really cramped everybody's style. It took me off the road and didn't take more than a few months for me to get sick of making home videos. But after a while... You start to think about what you don't have rather than what you do have mm-hmm. and just sink back into isolation, waiting for it. That That's what it's like for me at this age. Yeah. Yeah. And I was really ready to have my best year ever uh, in 2020. Yeah. And I hope to pick up where I left off. Uh, on the other hand, I'm not sure if I can imagine what it would be like for somebody that's in their uh, teens or 20s getting interrupted at that time of their life right socially and musically and people used to ask me well do you have advice for younger musicians i go yeah don't stay home go out as much as you can see every live show you can sit in as much as you can because you're going to learn the most important lessons on the bandstand now your life can be at stake for that yeah Certainly it's a missing year, as you suggest, in the careers of a lot of these people, and hopefully they can catch up for lost time. We're going to fast forward now to the conclusion of Dan's interview with Bob. Thanks for listening to Inside Jackson Station. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with our next episode with Maddie Pfeiffer and Kat Brinkley from a band called The Sensible Pumps an all-female blues band who frequented Jackson Station and played regularly. You can catch more of that in our next episode, but here's Bob's conclusion with Dan. Thanks again for listening. It was a real special time, and it was the essence of what blues music is all about, bringing all kinds of people together. Uh, in after midnight hours is when things would really get going, and people are in that atmosphere. And there's alcohol and other drugs involved and people get wild and loose. And obviously not everything that happens is beautiful and wonderful. And the end was tragic. But while it was going on, I think everybody involved in that felt very alive. I hate to cut things off. It's been great talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, you know, for responding to my email seven years ago when I first reached out to you. And and I'm glad you're alive and kicking and still rolling. Don't sass me, Sonny. (laughs) And stay off my lawn. Steady rolling, Bob Margolin. Hopefully I'll be able to catch you out at one of your other shows before too long. Hope so. Uh, I hope the shows come back. Good. 
And with that, we'll wrap up this episode of Inside Jackson Station. To play us out, we're going to leave you now with some more of Bob Margolin playing live with the Jumping Cats back in 2012. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Write us a review. Share the good word. Thanks as always for listening. We'll be back again soon. This is Inside Jackson Station. Ooh, I just can't take my breath.